get into Mormonism part two today, I wanted to cover something that just came out. These results came out in the last couple of weeks. Um, if you're familiar with the state of theology, it's a, it's a uh, survey that Legionnaire Ministries and Lifeway do every couple of years. Legionnaire Ministries, if you're familiar, great teaching ministry started by R.C. Sproul decades ago, and then Lifeway is a big publisher of uh, Christian literature, including Bibles. But they do this state of theology um, survey every couple of years to see what the state of theology is amongst Americans in general, as well as evangelical believers. So a few weeks back, we talked about religious pluralism, and I showed a Pew Research poll from a couple of years ago. It's kind of similar to what this state of theology is, but I just wanted to point out a couple of ways that Americans and then evangelical Americans answered particular questions to help cement kind of why we're doing this, and then also why Newcastle in particular teaches teaches specifically on doctrine, especially doctrines that are difficult. You know, people say, oh, doctrine divides. We don't want to get too particular on doctrine because it'll, you know, scare people off. What we'll see here is why doctrine's important. So I just wanted to share this quickly. It's got really nothing to do with Mormonism, but I wanted to show it. So I just want to look at three questions that were asked and look at what the answers were. So this question was asked, or this is a true-false. The statement was, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. The top responses there, so anything in the blue is where they said that was true, red is they disagree with that. The bottom one is looking at the filtered respondents, which is just American evangelicals. So professing Christians, 65% agreed with that, the children, that people are born innocent in the eyes of God. And some commentary was, the fact that two-thirds of evangelicals believe that humans are born in a state of innocence reveals that the biblical teaching of original sin is not embraced by most evangelicals. God's word, however, makes clear that all humans are, quote, by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. This truth is foundational for an accurate understanding of the gospel and our absolute need for the grace of God in salvation. So it might seem like a small thing. We look at little babies and say, look how innocent they are. But theologically, it's important to know that people are born in a state already of needing redemption. And if you don't believe that, if you believe that people are basically good and not necessarily in need of a savior, that makes the gospel somewhat uh, irrelevant. So this is an important one. So two-thirds of evangelicals uh, agree that we are born without sin, basically. Another one, this is one we talked about during religious pluralism, right? says, true-false, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. The top number is not super relevant here, again, because that's just what Americans say. But again, the bottom one is evangelical Americans. Over half, 56% of evangelical Christians said that this is a true statement. The commentary said some 56% of evangelicals agreed with the idea that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. In contrast to Jesus' words in Matthew that without him, no one knows the Father. Jesus, of course, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That should be pretty common knowledge for an evangelical Christian, but apparently over half believe that God is also on board with the religious worship of Judaism and Islam. Not good. One more, another true or false, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, you wouldn't think that a single evangelical Christian would agree with that, but 43% thought that was a true statement. And it says, the most stunning result had to do with the topic of Jesus Christ's divinity. When asked whether they agreed that, quote, Jesus was a great teacher but not God, 43% of evan American evangelicals answered yes. 
and that number is up 13% from just two years ago. So this is why we teach doctrine here, right? The doctrine of Jesus Christ is critical. Um, I, don't, I don't know what people are hearing in the churches that they're going to, that they would believe that Jesus was a great teacher but not God. They're probably going to the church of the culture. Uh, it's, it's somewhat popular to say, well, Jesus was a great teacher. He had very um, moral things to say. Social justice warriors can get on board with that. But scripture is quite clear that Christ is uh, God incarnate. So this is why we teach stuff. This is why we do these things. This is why doctrine matters and why we teach what we do here. So I didn't show this to you to depress you. Uh, this should, it, it is a little discouraging, yes, but it also means that there is work to be done and we can do that work. We can become equipped to share the good news with the top row people, of course, but also know that there are people within churches, maybe you have family members going to churches that aren't actually Christians because they don't believe uh, core attendance of the Christian faith. So, again, didn't have a lot to do with Mormonism specifically today, but I wanted to, to share that uh, and let you see that. If you go to thestateoftheology.com or .org, I don't know, the State of Theology, if you look it up, and if you're, if you're a chart nerd, you're going to love it because you can go work with these charts in an interactive way. You can add different filters. You can show it by um, sex. You can show it by age, by race or ethnicity all the different kinds of breakdowns. You can break down evangelicals a little further to say if people attend church at least once a week to get the better answers. The answers do improve when you get people that are regularly attending church, it gets a little bit better, but we've got 43% of people professing Christ that don't seem to know who he is, so we can let them know. With that, we'll move on to Mormonism, but I'll pray first and uh, we'll get into it today. Oh, Lord, you are a good and gracious God. Uh, Father, again and again, we, we thank you for opening our eyes to the truth of your word. I uh, pray that the numbers we just saw wouldn't uh, be overly discouraging to us. We know that you will build your church. There's no doubt about that. Father, we pray that we would be equipped to uh, help in that endeavor, that you would use us to uh, further the gospel truth. Pray that our time looking at Mormonism today, again, will uh, break our hearts for people that are deceived and, and equip us to share the true gospel with them. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talked about Mormonism last week, filled up the whole time. We never got to the evaluation. So we're going to do a bit of evaluating Mormonism today. But before that, we're going to watch a cartoon. <laughs> so I found this uh, film online. This is something put together. I'm thinking it was the 70s or the 80s. But it's you know, something fun to watch, and we can, we can talk about it. But it's, it's an animated feature that was made by Christians to point out some of the the teachings about Mormonism that you may not actually be aware of when you just hear of Mormonism on the side or you see Mormons doing good things seeming like Christian people. It's pointing out some of the, some of the teachings of um, the Mormon faith. Uh, and really, we could have just watched this last week and saved a lot of time because it's only eight minutes long. But we're going to try and see if this works. Uh, we can talk about it after, then we'll move into the evaluating. And then I have some more clips to show as well as we talk about evaluating to show how an interaction with a Mormon might actually go, knowing what we know and how we can confront them with that. So let's see if this, oh yeah. Regardless of its Christian veneer, the basic tenets of Mormonism are in direct conflict with biblical Christianity. The following piece of animation, based directly on actual Mormon publications, highlights these major doctrinal differences. 
Mormonism teaches that trillions of planets scattered throughout the cosmos are ruled by countless gods who once were human like us. They say that long ago on one of these planets, to an unidentified god and one of his goddess wives, a spirit child named Elohim was conceived. This spirit child was later born to human parents who gave him a physical body. Through obedience to Mormon teaching and death and resurrection, he proved himself worthy and was elevated to godhood as his father before him. Mormons believe that Elohim is their heavenly father and that he lives with his many goddess wives on a planet near a mysterious star called Korah. Here, the god of Mormonism and his wives through endless celestial sex produced billions of spirit children. To decide their destiny, the head of the Mormon gods called a great heavenly council meeting. Both of Elohim's eldest sons were there, Lucifer and his brother Jesus. A plan was presented to build planet Earth where the spirit children would be sent to take on mortal bodies and learn good from evil. Lucifer stood and made his bid for becoming savior of this new world. Wanting the glory for himself, he planned to force everyone to become gods. Opposing the idea, the Mormon Jesus suggested giving man his freedom of choice, as on other planets. The vote that followed approved the proposal of the Mormon Jesus, who would become savior of the planet Earth. Enraged, Lucifer cunningly convinced one-third of the spirits destined for Earth to fight with him in revolt. Thus, Lucifer became the devil and his followers the demons. Sent to this world, they would forever be denied bodies of flesh and bone. Those who remained neutral in the battle were cursed to be born with black skin. This is the Mormon explanation for the Negro race. The spirits that fought most valiantly against Lucifer would be born into Mormon families on planet Earth. These would be the lighter-skinned people, or white and delightsome, as the Book of Mormon describes them. Early Mormon prophets taught that Elohim and one of his goddess wives came to Earth as Adam and Eve to start the human race. Thousands of years later, Elohim, in human form once again, journeyed to Earth from the starbase Kolob, this time to have sex with the Virgin Mary, in order to provide Jesus with a physical body. After Jesus Christ grew to manhood, he took at least three wives, Mary, Martha, and Mary Magdalene. Through these wives, the Mormon Jesus, for whom Joseph Smith claimed direct descent, supposedly fathered a number of children before he was crucified. According to the Book of Mormon, after his resurrection, Jesus came to the Americas to preach to the Indians, who the Mormons believe are really Israelites. Thus, the Jesus of Mormonism established his church in the Americas as he had in Palestine. By the year 
421 AD, the dark-skinned Indian Israelites, known as Lamanites, had destroyed all of the white Nephites in a number of great battles. The Nephites' records were supposedly written on golden plates and buried by Moroni, the last living Nephite in the hill Cumorah. 1,400 years later, a young treasure seeker named Joseph Smith, who was known for his tall tales, claimed to have uncovered these same gold plates near his home in upstate New York. He is now honored by Mormons as a prophet because he claimed to have had visions from the spirit world in which he was commanded to organize the Mormon church because all Christian creeds were an abomination. It was Joseph Smith who originated most of these peculiar doctrines which millions today believe to be true. By maintaining a rigid code of financial and moral requirements and through performing sacred temple rituals for themselves and the dead, the Latter-day Saints hope to prove their worthiness and thus become gods. The Mormons teach that everyone must stand at the final judgment before Joseph Smith, the Mormon Jesus, and Elohim. Those Mormons who were sealed in the eternal marriage ceremony expect to become polygamous gods in the celestial kingdom, rule over other planets, and spawn new families throughout eternity. The Mormons thank God for Joseph Smith, who claimed that he had done more for us than any other man, including Jesus Christ. The Mormons believe that he died as a martyr, shed his blood for us, so that we too, may become gods. Although there are thousands of Mormon churches throughout the world, there are only a few dozen Mormon temples. These massive structures play a vital role in the Mormons' quest for godhood. Mormons must engage in a series of occultic rituals inside the temple in order to become a candidate for godhood. Only an elite selection of devout Mormons are allowed to enter. To do so, the potential Mormon god must adhere to a strict code of ethics, including abstinence from tobacco or caffeine-based products, paying a full tithe to the Mormon church, and wearing of the magic Mormon underwear 24 hours a day. He has to receive a satisfactory interview from his bishop and from his stake president. There he's asked, or she has asked, certain rather penetrating questions about their worthiness, their morality, if he's a full tithe peer, that is the only way that we can be with our Heavenly Father. Otherwise, uh, we could not be in his presence. The motivation for the Mormon male to commit to such requirements is the promise of endless celestial sex with thousands of goddess wives, along with a personal planet to rule and reign over. However, Mormon males who fail to meet all of the necessary requirements risk being castrated upon their entrance to heaven. So you can see why the temple is so important to the Latter-day Saint. Because if he is worthy to go into the temple and there receive the sacred ordinances and covenants and keep them, he can eventually grow into becoming a god himself. Tell me who God the Father is to you. He is like you and I, every human being on the face of the earth. So is he a man? Yes, he is. How did he get to be God? Yeah, he's, 
he's perfect in every way. So if we are perfect, can we become like God? Yes, ma'am. That's interesting, right? <laughs> um, I just wanted to note, so there's a lot of pretty crazy stuff noted there, but there, that's all well-documented information. Some of it is things that the church no longer teaches. Uh, like I think you were all a little shocked about the curse of the dark skin for the, for the celestial beings that were neutral in there. That's part of what was reversed and kind of set aside back in 1978 that we talked about last time, where... Uh, the dark-skinned people were allowed to have the priesthood now, but there were actually a number of teachings along those lines, very, very racist teachings. Um, there, the one mentioned was that the, those celestial beings that were neutral in terms of, do we go with Jesus's plan or Lucifer's plan? They were cursed with it. That's one teaching. Uh, Brigham Young, who is the second leader of the Mormon church, taught that um, the mark of Cain in scripture, the mark that was given to Cain was dark skin and the flat nose, and that was the source of the African-American race. And this was around the time of still slavery in North America, so this was all to really justify that institution. So there's a lot of wacky stuff, all well documented. I forgot to mention last time that a lot of my material is coming from this book called The Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. Um, he was a preacher uh, in the mid 20th century very, very concerned with um, cults using the term cult as like the offshoots of Christianity, the false teaching of Christianity. So much on Mormonism in there, much on Jehovah's Witnesses. There's stuff in there about uh, the Baha'i faith, Christian science, Scientology, lots of stuff. We used to have copies of it, I think, in the Resource Center. Um, it didn't look like this. This is an older edition. It was a bit newer version of this. But if, if this kind of stuff interests you or you're interacting with people that have those beliefs, that's a wonderful resource. Um, to use. Any questions or comments about that video? Okay. There's one of those about uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses faith that if we're lucky we can watch that one when we get to Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't know, or you can find it on your own. Um, anyway, let's awkwardly transition then to some evaluation of the Mormon faith. So this is what we didn't get to last time. So we we're all kind of gathering. This is a bit of a crazy, crazy religion, right? But let's let's look more specifically at why that is and evaluate it on its own terms, what its professed beliefs are, with the, the internal critique of Mormonism, and then we'll also look at some of the practical, more heart tools uh, of Mormonism as well. So what I want to start with is the consistency. Uh, and this one will have some videos intermixed as well to see how this can be used in practice. Um, and depending on how we do on time, we'll look at some of the other tools as well. But I would expect that if you ever have the opportunity to speak to Mormons at this level, this would be, I think, the best place uh, to start. Like if Mormon missionaries come to your door, they ask you to read the Book of Mormon and then pray to Heavenly Father to find out whether it's true asking them questions about the Book of Mormon, along with their other professed sacred scripture, the Bible, is a great place to, to start with that, showing how God's word and God's word seem to come into collision with one another, I think would lead that conversation in a very fruitful directions. And the, the videos that we'll look at in between here can kind of show how that happens um, in practice, which isn't always gonna be a magical on the spot repentance, right? It's, it's gonna be real videos of them really talking to people and seeing how um, that goes, but shows how you can challenge and interact with them um, using God's word as the tool to do that. 
So we'll look at this, and we want to ask the question, is Mormonism consistent within itself? Do the scriptures, their, their professed scriptures, agree with one another, or do they end up coming into conflict and contradicting one another? What we'll find are there are numerous, numerous apparent conflicts between um, the Bible and then the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price and their teaching. I'm just going to put a few on the screen uh, that can fit, and we're going to look at a couple different sections or different categories to compare what the Bible says with what other Mormon teaching says. So we're going to start by looking at what these say about God, right? There are clearly different views of who God is in the Bible versus the Book of Mormon and their others. So we'll just quickly look at these, and I want to mainly key in on the most destructive text from the Bible to the whole Mormon, um, the whole setup. There's lots to say, but this is the big one. If you're going to ever talk to Mormons, you want to be sure that you know Isaiah 43:10. That's before me was no God formed, nor shall there be any after. Before me was no God formed, nor shall there be any made after. And if for bonus points, you could do Isaiah 46, 9, which is for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Those scriptures fly in the face of what the Mormon believes about the gods just of this world and gods of the eternal regression backwards and the becoming gods themselves and the eternal progression forward of gods. This is clearly contrary to what they teach. And I just took one scripture from the book of Abraham, which is in the Pearl of Great Price, um, that just talks about a plurality of gods right off the bat. And it says, and the gods said, let there be light. And there was light. That's from Abraham 4.3. The Bible also obviously teaches that God has always been God. He's the Alpha and the Omega. We can refer to Psalm 90 verse 2 or Isaiah 57.15. I won't go through all of the, the biblical scriptures, but this is something we're quite, quite clear on in the Bible. Whereas, as we saw in the video and as we talked about last week, the belief is that the God of this world, Elohim, was before he was a man and has become a God. And we, we even looked at the King Follett Discourse, and here's a quote from that. that says, God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. Clearly uh, in conflict here. And then uh, the last one I put on here about God is that God is, we believe, as scripture teaches, that God is spirit without flesh and bone. We don't believe that God the Father has a physical body. Whereas um, in Doctrine and Covenants, among other places, uh, they have in their scripture that the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. So they would suggest that even now, Elohim, Heavenly Father, has flesh and bone in direct conflict with what the Bible teaches. Uh, another that I didn't put on here related to the Trinity, I uh, just wanted to bring it up because this is another place where we can get in some deceptive word games with the Mormon because they would suggest that they believe in the Trinity uh, as well. But whereas we would say the Trinity is referring to one God in three persons, those persons being God the Father, God the Son, and God the, the Holy Spirit, that's not the way that the Mormon describes the Trinity. Um, if you're familiar with any of the historic ecumenical Christian creeds, there's one called the Athanasian Creed, um, which would be beneficial to read. But it makes the important clarification for the Orthodox Christian understanding of the Trinity when it says that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. So when we talk about three in one, we're not, we're not confounding the individuals in there and we're not dividing the essence either. Of course, this is confusing, but that's a key Christian teaching. 
Um, but the Latter-day Saint Church, while they'll still use the same or very similar names for the persons of the Trinity, uh, they take it a different direction. Uh, their articles of faith say that we believe in God, the Eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. Okay, not bad. Continues, we believe they are three distinct personages, but not one singular being. We call them the Godhead. So they do confound the persons, as the, as the Athanasian Creed explicitly shares that we should not, as a, in accordance with the scriptures. And what they do is they conflate person and being into, into one thing, where, of course, scripture is careful to distinguish. So I just wanted to point that out. If they, if they affirm the Trinity, we're not talking the same language again. And as you saw in the video, the way that they talk about that second person of the Trinity gaining his humanly body is a bit uh, off <laughs> as well. So now I want to I show how we can use Isaiah 43.10 to, or this whole idea of the difference between what the Bible says about God and what the Mormon teachings say about God to have an interaction with a Mormon. To set some context for this one here, uh, they are outside of a Mormon temple at a, at a big event. The, the pastor that's going to be speaking is a pastor of Apologia Church in uh, Arizona. I've actually been to that uh, church before. They have a very big Mormon ministry because of their area. They interact with Mormons frequently, and they're trying to catch uh, these Mormon missionaries specifically as they're leaving. So when we see the interaction, he's going to be a little bit direct with this Mormon versus one we look at later where they're a little more gentle. Um, I believe this is because this is a Mormon who is a missionary going to teach these things to others. So he's a little more, it's not really harsh, but a little more direct and to the point with him than you might be with somebody who you're genuinely trying to, you know, teach the truth to. So let's watch this and see how it goes. They're in a crowd, so it's a little bit hard to hear. I manually added, like, a couple subtitles myself, and that was difficult, so it's not the whole conversation. But uh, hopefully we can uh, get some uh, good stuff out of it. Okay, no? Do you believe you're going to become a god one day? Yeah. Why? Because I believe in the scriptures and the prophets have Where? Us. It's all throughout the scriptures. Where? If you really want to know, I guess you could search the scriptures yourselves. You know, the Bible actually says in Isaiah 43.10, Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Joseph taught that there were gods before God and you could become one one day. Yeah. The scriptures condemn that. And you're on your mission telling people about a God and a gospel that's contrary to the scriptures. Then again, the Bible has been translated multiple times, and through that, many things have become lost, which I guess is one reason why there's So you disagree with Jesus when he says that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will by no means pass away? Well, I guess it's kind of like this, like, we are, we're like spirits of our Heavenly Father or God, right? And like, why would he create something that, why would he be something that we can't become because he is our Heavenly Father? Okay, so we're talking about the God issue now. Okay, so... Jesus did say that God would preserve his word, but, but the Bible does teach that there's a distinction between God as creator and us as creatures. We're not... We have a car in mind. All right, yeah. Isaiah chapter 43, 10. You should take a look at that tonight, Elder, and know that you should repent of this mission and the gospel and the God that you're telling people about. You're going to be... You're going to be held accountable for it one day, Elder. Yeah, it will be held accountable for what is correct. Uh, you'll notice that you had no response to the scriptures. 
no magical conversion on that one. But uh, the pastor used the scripture to confront the Mormon with what he is then going and teaching other people. So bringing those things into collision. Uh, I do know that uh, Apologia Church has a huge number of Mormon converts in their church. So some do go well. Um, but if that were you in that situation, I wouldn't call that a failure. I would call that I, I shared the truth with him and let the Holy Spirit do with it um, what he will. Depending on your context, I also probably wouldn't recommend just shouting at people, do you believe you're going to become a god one day? But knowing where they were and what they, what they teach, that was a way to get their attention. They're out there trying to catch people as they're walking by. But any other comments or thoughts on, on an interaction like that? Choosing to see it as not a failure is important because I think that's what prevents us from doing it again. Oh, there was a magical conversion, so I'm not good at this. I'm not going to do it again. And that is against really what is the purpose of it for us. So I think choosing to see it as a good opportunity versus a failure is important. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And as long as you are using God's word to do it, right, that's the right method whether it works or not. Um, you could talk to them about the sacred underwear and make them feel stupid about that, but it's probably not going to convert them either, right? God's, God's word uh, through the spirit is what causes conversion. So um, hopefully it's encouraging to see a major ministry like that where not everyone is a conversion so that we know that uh, we are equipped. If we know God's word, um, we can do these things. And there are, I've seen online, there's like a list of, you can say, the hundred verses you need to memorize to, to interact with a Mormon. Uh, I wouldn't wait until you memorized all 100 <laughs> to do it, but starting with something like Isaiah 4310 uh, and things like that would definitely be a, a good start. Anything else? We'll jump to the next one and talk about creation. There's also very clearly a different set of teaching on creation in the Bible versus the other Mormon scriptures. The Bible teaches that God created the world out of nothing. First off, that creation ex nihilo, we like to say, versus the Mormon teaching that this world was made out of pre-existing matter. We obviously have Genesis 1.1, but also Hebrews 11.3, Revelation 4.11, clearly talking about God creating this world from nothing, didn't use any existing tools. And then also importantly, Jesus' Jesus's involvement in the creation of all things of this world, specifically John 1.1, where in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it mentions that uh, all things were created through the word. Nothing that has been made has been made apart from, from him. So Jesus being involved in creation becomes important as we contrast that with uh, Mormon teaching. One that I called out here was from the book of Abraham 324. It says, and there stood one among them, this referring to the, the, pre, the pre-mortal council of the gods, that said, we will go down, for there is space there, and we will take of these materials and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. So again, we talked about this last time, this idea that um, the universe is eternal. The universe, matter, is more ultimate even than the gods. We talked about the universe being a god factory and then the gods being world factories. So the, one of the, the key teachings that will be confronted, apart from just the pre-existing matter, one of the key teachings that we'll look at in this next video uh, has to do with their belief that we saw in that cartoon about the idea of Lucifer and Jesus being spirit brothers, both being birthed by Elohim and his goddess wives. This next conversation kind of uses that idea to, to go into a conversation with them. So 
we'll take another look at a video to see how this one goes. You'll see this one is a little more gentle than the previous one. They're not talking to someone who's going in and teaching these things elsewhere. You can see it's a very uh, loving conversation. I, I enjoy this one. This is the same church, just a different guy talking. We know there's still a teaching carries over in English. Jesus was in the beginning with the Father. He had no beginning. He's eternal and he created all things that have come into being. And nothing has come into being outside of him. So that would include Lucifer. So again, that collision there between those two perspectives, Joseph saying that they're spirit brothers, you know, begotten by Elohim and one of his goddess wives in pre-existence. Actually created Satan. So, our concern, our loving concern for you guys is that this church teaches a different Jesus than the one of Scripture. And you would agree with me, John 14, 6 says, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So, if you have a different Jesus other than the one in Scripture, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, he warns the church in the first century, I'm, a, I'm concerned about you guys that you guys are being led away to follow a different Christ. My concern is the same as the Apostle Paul's. I'm concerned for you guys because I love you guys. Right. This church is teaching a different Jesus and ultimately a different gospel. And if you have that, then ultimately you're, you're not, you don't know Jesus. So would you, would you, I mean, I, again, what was your Jordan, right? Yeah. Um, again, I'd love to continue talking with you guys. I would encourage you to look at John chapter 1, verse 1. Um, look at that scripture. Also... Um, Isaiah 43.10, I know, um, according to Mormon theology, there are many gods before God, and you can become one one day. Is that what you guys believe? You can become a god? Well, I would encourage you with love, you know, when you're home tonight, look up that passage, Isaiah 43.10, it says, before me, no god was for me, neither shall there be any after me. So again, that presents another collision. Um, you know, God says there weren't any gods before him, and you won't become one one day. You're very well scripted. <laughs> so, well, no, I, I, again, I don't want you to... Oh, to, of course I, not. Yeah, I, I don't get bad vibes from you guys at all. Sounds okay. like you guys are very well-grounded and you're very composed, which I respect. Yeah. So, well, so I appreciate that, you guys. We appreciate that. And the reason for this is to show, I mean, very honestly, we love your community. It's not um, you guys. It's Joseph's revelation. It's Joseph's teaching. It's the teaching of the church that we're comparing to Scripture and saying to these two things line up, right. and I've given you a couple verses already, and I think, I mean, you'd admit that there isn't a response, really, yeah. at this point. Yeah, I know, and you're shaking my faith a little bit. That's good. That's really good. Just, well, <laughs> well, I would say that's good if you would. You guys, we gotta what, go. We yeah, have a... Show we have a show well, my, my friend, we'd love to talk with you. Um, please, come and talk with us on the way out. I don't know if you could hear that or read the subtitle, but the guy said, uh, yeah, I know, and you're shaking my face a little, and then hightailed it out of there. Uh, but hopefully that was, you know, a rock stuck in his shoe that he's going to be thinking about uh, later on. Any immediate thoughts or comments about that one? Something, yeah, go ahead, Are we taught to, um, to really dig into the Bible and the Book of Mormon? I mean, it seemed like even that first guy, he was just like a deer in the headlights for the stuff and even him, you know, he's like, oh, you're well scripted. So are they taught to really study for themselves? Not so much the Bible. That Of the four works, that would probably get the least attention. Really, it's the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Doctrine of Covenants where they get most of their stuff. Because as you saw, the, the, the first 
guy in the first one jumped into him sounding very scripted when he said, well, the Bible has been translated so many times, like he's been trained to, that that's their position. And we'll touch on that uh, in a minute. One of the things that I appreciate that was pointed out there um, by, the, by the guy from Apologia talking was he said, it's not you guys, it's the teachings of Joseph Smith. And that's key for us for all of these things. Um, I have strong, strong negative feelings toward Mormonism. The ism is what grinds my gears and has serious problems. I, you, might, you might say I righteously hate Mormonism, but we have to be careful that we don't have those feelings toward Mormons. Mormons are image bearers of God that, that need the good news of the gospel. So I appreciate him saying that. Uh, you could probably see here this was a, a, a more gentle interaction, right? They were in a, a longer term conversation. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, when talking to a Mormon, they, they formally affirm the Bible as the word of God. So there's a starting point there. I would say when talking with an unbeliever, uh, I've heard this analogy before. I'll see if I can remember it right. Um, someone is coming up to you holding a knife, wanting to attack you, okay? And you, you pull out a gun. Let's just say we're in a, in a state where <laughs> that's, that's a little more left. You pull out your gun and say, I have a gun, you have a knife, I'm going to win this conversation. The guy holding the knife says, oh, I don't, I don't believe in guns. Right? What are you going to do? Are you going to apologize, put it away, and try to reason with them at the knife level? Or are you going to shoot them? <laughs> You're going to take, and, take it, that's an analogy. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but that's what we have with the word of God. We have the most powerful weapon imaginable, the word of the true and living God. So I would never recommend sacrificing that. What I would recommend is I've talked about before in other classes about the, the two-step presuppositional model to apologetics where you, you, you don't, there's no neutral ground. The knife isn't neutral ground. That's their ground. Um, stand our ground and invite them into our world and explain the world through our lens, through our worldview lens, using the word of God to do so. And then if they're still willing to talk, say, let's step into your world with your lens and see how the world looks that way. See if the world can make sense outside of the world of God. And that, that's what, what I would recommend in there. How that looks in any given conversation um, can be different, and that can lead to then conversations about why the, the Bible is reliable. You can talk about the archaeological evidence, the historical evidence, all of those kinds of things. That's a, that's a very valid way to, to speak. But I think both of these, this guy and gal here and the other guy, hopefully have something to think about to, to go home and, and review. Yeah. This is the hyphen. This is the official hyphenated Latter-day Saints. Yeah. So the big populace would be in Utah, but just south of that in Arizona has a very big population as well. And there's a Mormon temple in Tucson, which is where they 
were here. Anything else? We'll go to one more and talk about the clearly different views of uh, salvation. The Bible obviously teaches salvation by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, based on his full efficacious atonement, his substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, actually achieving and securing salvation for us, not simply making it possible. We talked about last week how the, the Mormon view of the atonement was that Jesus' death, uh, his atonement made salvation possible for us, made it possible that we too could be resurrected and saved. But salvation by grace alone taught all throughout scripture. I specifically called out Romans 3 and 4 and Ephesians 2. Very clearly, our salvation is by not by works of our flesh, but by the grace of God. We heard last time from Second um, Nephi, the, the very commonly understood verse from Second Nephi uh, about we are saved by grace after all we can do, was their teaching. So instead of putting that one up here again, I put another up from uh, their Articles of Faith, which I don't remember if I mentioned last time. The Articles of Faith are part of the Pearl of Great Price. So the Pearl of Great Price has a couple of Joseph's retranslations of some of the books of the Bible, like his retranslation of bits of Matthew. It has new books like the Book of Moses and Book of Abraham. And then it also has these Articles of Faith at the end, which is kind of like the, the section on the church website, the what we believe type thing. But this is from their Articles of Faith. It says, as these sins are the result of individual acts, it is just that forgiveness for them should be conditioned on individual compliance with prescribed requirements. That's from page 79 of their Articles of Faith. Um, one more that I didn't put on there, this is from Joseph Smith's teaching, also in the Articles of Faith. He said, to get salvation, we must not only do some things, but everything which God has commanded. Men may preach and practice everything except those things which God commands us to do and will be damned at last. So we must not just do some of the things God says. We must do all of the things, which sounds reasonable. We should do all the things God commanded. But that, on this view, is the condition for salvation. So if you fail to do any of those things, you have not fulfilled those conditions. And uh, going back to the second Nephi where it says we are saved by grace after all we can do, they believe that all of the commands of God, all of the ordinances that, they're ha that they have, are things that we can do. So they would say we are fully capable of doing all of the things that God has commanded us to do. And if you do not, if you do not live up to that level, you are in, in jeopardy of getting to that full celestial kingdom. Questions or comments before I hit one more video? Yeah? They do. They do. They use the King. They use the the authorized King James version, the 1611 King James. I mean, they. Ha I don't know if they actually use it. <laughs> they don't read it probably that much, but that is their official translation. Yeah. And actually, um, much of the Book of Mormon is copy paste from the King James uh, into it. He he just took sections of scripture ported it over into to his writings. It's a really terrible, if you ever read the Book of Mormon, you're, you're going to say, this sounds kind of Bible-y. And those sections are probably yanked out of the Bible in there. Um, but yes, they, they do officially affirm the King James translation. Yep. Yeah, I was going to say, that's why it's important for us to know our doctrine, right? Because they'll use the scripture and they'll, they'll sound right, but they twist it, right? They yeah. They're twisting on a lot of things. And so 
yeah, for sure. We've got to know far more than the surface of our own Bibles. Yes, exactly right. Did I was just going to say, if they believe in the Bible, how does that jive with their other books? Yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's the point of this whole chart. And we'll, we'll kind of look at in a second what their response is to these contradictions and see how we can address that. Before we do that, we'll watch one more. Oh, man. I really want to show this video. We're going to do it. We'll do, it. We'll do the video. So this, has anybody heard of the YouTube channel Lutheran Satire, by chance, or the characters of Donald and Connell? Kyle, you have? The rest of you are in for a treat today. So Donald and Connell are two, it's animated, they're two Irish monks. Uh, kind of their thing is confronting false beliefs. Uh, they, they speak in a bad Irish accent. They call everybody they're talking to Patrick. That's just their thing. Um, but uh, they have videos uh, responding to bad analogies for the Trinity. You know, people say the Trinity is like water, and they'll point out that's modalism, or they'll talk about the Trinity is like a clover. That's partialism. Uh, it's funny. In this one, they're interacting with two... Um, fake Mormon missionaries sharing the, the gospel of Mormonism and confronting that with what that means and how that conflicts with scripture ultimately, but how that doesn't actually give genuine uh, hope to a Mormon. So we'll watch that and see where we are on time. <laughs> okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about your super comforting gospel message again. Yeah, Patrick, soothe our spirits with that latter-day balm of Gilead one more time. Well, as I was saying, even though none of us has done everything Heavenly Father requires in order to be saved, he still promised to give his grace to all of us. That's right. You see, 2 Nephi 25, 23 states, For we know that it is by grace that we are saved, after all we can do. Isn't that great? Ein minuta, por favor, Patrick. Yeah, Patrick, temporarily halt your evangelistic forward progress whilst we process the pontifications of your prophet. So we agree that the law of God says you must perfectly love your Lord with all your heart and perfectly love your neighbor as yourself in order to merit salvation. Sure, yeah. And we furthermore agree that no one, aside from Jesus himself, has achieved the perfection necessary for salvation. Right. And according to your aforementioned sacred scriptures, God has promised to give his saving grace to those who, despite their best efforts, have been unable to achieve the level of perfection necessary. Right. Isn't that super comforting? Patrick, what you've just said is less comforting than a pair of Brillo pad underpants. Yeah, Patrick, your gospel is less soothing than a jalapeno sriracha bubble bath. What do you mean? Yeah, we just showed you from the Book of Mormon that God will still save us even if we aren't perfect. No, Patrick, I'm pretty sure you just showed us from the Book of Mormon that you're both going to burn in hell forever. What are you talking about? Yeah, we're not really picking up what you're laying down here. Well then, Patrick, grant us a mere 40.305 seconds, and we'll show you how, according to your own theology, you can both expect to be bathing in sulfur for all eternity. Uh, all right. And here we go. Patrick, what's a better way to love God with all your heart? Spending two hours watching a movie or spending two hours praying? Two hours praying, obviously. Agree. And other Patrick, what's a better way to love your neighbor as yourself? Spending two hours watching a movie or spending two hours volunteering at a homeless shelter? Definitely the homeless shelter. Agreed again. Now, Patrick's, have you ever been to a movie? Sure. Yeah. And when you went to that movie, you were perfectly capable of praying or feeding the homeless instead, but you actively chose not to do these holier things, correct? Well, yeah. But... Well then, whereas your prophet Nephi says that God only gives his grace to those who have done all they can do to keep the law, and whereas your 2005 ticket stub for the adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl proves that you haven't done all you can do, therefore be it resolved that you both stand condemned, according to your own theology. Oh my heck. 
I never even thought about that. Well, I'll never be saved if that's how God's grace works. Yeah, that's a terrifying idea. I, I don't want to go to hell. What should we do? Well, you could just believe that mankind is saved by grace alone through faith alone, that every ounce of our salvation has been won for us in the death of Jesus Christ alone, and that the faith we need to receive that salvation has been created in our hearts by the Holy Spirit alone, which means that even though we didn't do all we could do to inherit eternal life, God has already given us all we needed to inherit eternal life by covering us in the perfect righteousness of his son. I mean, you could just believe this, since it's the clear teaching of Romans 3 and 4 and 5, Ephesians 2, Titus 3, all of Galatians, and pretty much every other page of the Bible, Patrick. So instead of letting an honest reading of your false prophet's teachings convince you that you're going to hell, you could just believe the true gospel given to us by the apostles and prophets themselves and no longer be filled with crippling fear. Yeah, but then we'd have to tell our parents that we weren't Mormons anymore. So just to be clear, you're more afraid of your mother than you are the wrath of God. Yeah, pretty much. Does that make us bad people? Sorta, but mostly it just makes you Irish. By the way, why are you guys flipped from how you were standing before? Oh, we just put on our Halloween costumes. I'm dressed as Connell. Oh, and are you dressed as Donald? as former Surgeon General C. Everett Coop. So that was ridiculous, but actually helpful in displaying some of the conflicts in what the Mormon gospel uh, is teaching. There's, there's no good news in the Mormon gospel, and, and what this kind of points out and what all of their other teaching points out is it's very much about outward action than it is about inward belief. The way that you are saved in the Mormon church is not based on what you believe and where you put your faith and trust. It's about what you do. And as they said, if we're supposed to do all we can do, as, as either Donald or Connell pointed out, I could have gone and served at a soup kitchen last night, but I didn't. I stayed home. So I didn't do all I could do. And that starts to deteriorate hope. Any... I don't know what comments you would have on that. Any, <laughs> look up Lutheran satire for other um, fun videos. But either way, point made, I don't have it on here anymore. On that previous page, that was all I could fit on the page and have it be somewhat uh, readable. But hopefully it's becoming clear that on point after point after point, the theology of Mormonism is in direct conflict and collision with the theology of the Bible. And as we said, they formally affirm both sets of scripture. So the question was, what do they say about that, right? If, if they are saying both of these things are true and they're in conflict, what's the response? Well, the standard response is what that first young man said at the beginning, was, which is that the Bible has been corrupted. They, and when they say that, they mean that the original teachings of the apostles has been lost. So shortly after Jesus and the apostles died, they would suggest that the content of their teaching was lost or modified, and what we have in the Bible today contains additions or contains subtractions. So any conflicts between the Bible and the Book of Mormon or the other um, uh, documents that they affirm is due to the fact that the Bible has been corrupted, that it's been translated incorrectly. So anything where there's a conflict, that's because Joseph Smith corrected that in his teaching. Now the problem with that is that there's absolutely no historical evidence or corroboration of that fact. There's no historical support or evidence to, to 
affirm that the Bible has in any way been corrupted from its initial writings to the transmission we have today. I've done, I think, three classes, uh, two in apologetics-based ADEs and once in a rooted class for the students, talking about the amazing manuscript tradition and early manuscripts that we have for our scriptures. We have an absurd wealth of Greek and Hebrew manuscripts from very early dates showing that the Bible has been faithfully and reliably transmitted to us today over the, the millennia, really, putting any other contemporary writings to shame. We have more, we can have more historical confidence that the, the writings of the Gospels are what Matthew wrote and that those things happened than we do about anything about the life of Alexander the Great, for example, someone from the same time. All we have from the Mormon side of this argument is Joseph Smith's claim that it's been corrupted. There's no evidence for it. All of the evidence, in fact, points uh, quite the other way. Anyone that were, were to investigate the history of the Bible, look at the sources, look at the authorship, especially of the New Testament, you would see that what we have is reliably transmitted eyewitness testimony of the things that happened in those days, of the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. Whereas in the Mormon texts, they even conflict with one another. And the Book of Mormon, while only being written you know, in, in 1830-ish, has been revised many times along the way. Uh, the, the video talked about um, the, the angels that did the right thing were, given, were born into Mormon families with white skin being referred to as white and delightsome, which was from the Book of Mormon. Uh, they've gone back and changed that to say uh, pure and delightsome to get rid of the, the white part. So even their documents have been corrupted and conflict with one another. So if you're gonna make an argument that the Bible is the thing that's been corrupted, you're, go, you're taking a pretty big leap of faith to do so because none of the historical evidence uh, supports that. So that's something you could share with them, whether they're gonna accept that. Frankly, it's not really our business whether they accept it or not. We, of course, hope that they do, but we let the Holy Spirit do whatever work uh, he desires to do. Okay, blew it on the time. Um, but the good news is all of these things are in the notes that I emailed out a week and a half ago or so. So you can look at these if you would like. Um, there's a couple more logical things to look at, which may not be helpful, but the one that I put at the very end was again about hope. And it's similarly, uh, oh wait, can the Mormon, does the Mormon gospel actually give hope that they have the truth? Because one of the things that they suggest is that they are the one true church that uh, for 1800 years after the death of Christ and the apostles, there was no true church. They teach that the gospel was completely lost. So any professing believers in those 1800 years did not have the truth. There was no true church until Joseph Smith came with his revelation. So the question to, to think about is, well, could the Mormon gospel change? If the Christian gospel was wrong for 1800 years and then changed on Joseph Smith's arrival, how can they know that they really are the one true church and, and they're not going to change? Because they again say that the church was completely apostate for 1800 years and that Christians or people that thought they were Christians were utterly deceived and lost for 1800 years. So how could a Mormon be confident that they aren't actually in the same boat, right? That they aren't also believing a false prophet and there's gonna be some other prophet yet to come to give the real gospel and they don't actually believe the right thing. They wouldn't be able to say, well, you know, God would never do that. God wouldn't deceive us, but that's exactly what they claim happened for 1800 years. So you'd have to ask, what assurance of your salvation do you have? What assurance do you have that you actually believe the right things, that you are part of the one true church and see how they respond to it. Now quickly, because I'm running out of time, 
something for us to remember about this, about this whole idea of the church being completely lost for this long, that's contrary to what Jesus taught. We know that Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we have a whole, a whole book of evidence of the fact that there is always a remnant. Sometimes it's smaller than, than we would hope, but there is always a true remnant. And that's not what the LDS church believed. Additionally, we have at the end of his great commission, what did Jesus say to the apostles when he gave them this charge to go share the good news with the nations? He said, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, the Mormon teaches that he was, Jesus was absent for, for 1,800 years. So any final questions or comments on Mormonism before we dismiss today? Okay. Once again, Mormons are people that need a gospel. They are very good people. They are very moral people, but they are deceived people and lost people. Mormonism is not a denomination of Christianity. It is definitionally a cult of it, and they are people that need redeemed. And if you know some, I would pray for courage for you and boldness to, to share the good news with them. You can use some of the things we looked at today. Use Isaiah 43.10 to, to confront that belief and show how it comes into conflict. Then, as I've said a few times, let the Holy Spirit do with that what he will. But we, we, can, we can be faithful in this. We don't, have to be, we don't have to be pastors ourselves. We don't have to have all of the scriptures memorized. We don't have to have read all of their, their scriptures, which we could do. There's, there's no harm in that. We don't have to know it all. But um, being familiar with the core elements and doctrines of Christianity is always a great place to start. If they, they, you find out that they're Mormon, you can just start asking questions about that. So I've, I've heard some things about that. Um, what, what do you believe about God? Just start, start a question that way and see how it goes. So that's my encouragement to you. With that, I'll pray and we can dismiss for this week. Lord God, once again, don't know why you've, you've chosen us to, to be your, your people, why you've opened our eyes to the scriptures. It's humbling. Uh, it's something that I pray that we would not forget. We would not get puffed up thinking that we are wise while other people are fools. If there's any wisdom in us, it's because you've granted it to us. Rather, I pray that you would continue to do that. We ask for wisdom to know how to deal with those that are deceived. We pray that you would open the eyes of, of really any unbeliever in our lives, but particularly as we've been studying Mormonism, any that are deceived by the Church of Latter-day Saints, Father. I pray that uh, you would move in them, you would draw them close to your true self, and that they can shed off these false beliefs and come to the, the true good news of Jesus Christ and what he has fully accomplished for us on the cross. Pray that in his name. Amen.